Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, First Kings chapter two, continued. Well, at this point in First Kings chapter two, David is now sleeping with his ancestors. And so young King Solomon was ruling without the benefit of his father's sage and streetwise advice and counsel. A youthful 20 years old approximately. Solomon must have felt a kind of loneliness and inadequacy to rule over such a large nation of people all by himself. David had given Shlomo instructions on how to deal with what David thought would be the greatest threats to his throne. And those threats would come from powerful men who had also vexed David at one time or another. And while the scriptures only identify a couple of those men, Joab and Shimei, who are called out by name, no doubt the enemies list was a lot longer. It's just that for some reason these are the only ones that the writer of 1 Kings chose to record, likely because their stories were developed in the book of Samuel, so they were already known. It's just not credible that after all of David's 40 years in office, all the toes he had stepped upon, the many Hebrew families who had respected members that he had killed or otherwise offended that only two people would have wanted revenge upon David's dynasty. So what David gave to Solomon were essentially case examples of how he thought Solomon should protect his just beginning monarchy. And naturally he also gave the example in the sons of Barzillai of rewarding those who had steadfast fastness in their loyalty to, to the royal family. Well, soon after David's death, Adonijah, David's son, through his wife Hagit, the one who had thrown this great banquet in honor of himself in anticipation of becoming king of Israel, but it had his way blocked by the prophet Nathan's efforts, he came calling on Shlomo's mother. And Bathsheba was no no doubt a bit shocked to see Adonia on her doorstep since only months earlier he was hanging on to those horns of the altar for dear life certain that Bathsheba's son would have him executed. Now he appears asking her for a favor. Let's reread that pertinent section of this chapter. We're going to read 1 Kings 2 We're going to read from 12 on to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 368. Shlomo sat on the throne of David his father, and his rule had become firmly established. When Adonia, the son of Hagith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Shlomo, and she asked, Have you come as a friend? And he answered, yes, as a friend. And then he continued, I have something to say to you. And she said, go on. 
And he said, you know that the kingdom should have been mine. That all Israel was looking to me to be their ruler. No matter, the kingdom has turned around and become my brother's because Adonai gave it to him. But now I ask one favor of you. Don't deny me. Go on, she said. He said, please, speak to Shlomo the king for he won't say no to you. And ask him to give me Avishag the Shunamite as my wife. And Bathsheba said, all right, I'll speak to the king on your behalf. So Bathsheba went to King Shlomo to speak to him on behalf of Adonia. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. And then he sat down on his throne and had a throne set up for the king's mother so that she sat at his right. And she said, I'm asking one small favor of you, so don't deny me. And the king said to her, Ask, mother, I won't deny you. And she said, Let Avishag the Shunammite be given to Adonai, your brother, as his wife. And King Shlomo answered his mother, Why are you asking Avishag the Shunammite for Adonia. Ask the kingdom for him too. After all, he's my older brother. Yes, for him and for Eviatar the Kohen and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. And then the king, the king Slomo swore by Adonai, my God do terrible things to me and worse if Adonijah hasn't condemned himself to death with his request. Now therefore, as Adonai lives, who has established me, put me on the throne of, my, of David my father, set up a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonia will certainly be put to death today. King Shlomo commissioned Beniah, the son of Yehoiada, and he struck him down so that he died. To Eviatar the Cohen, the king said, You, get yourself to Anatoth, to your own fields. You deserve to die. But I won't put you to death just now since you did carry the ark of Adonai Elohim before David my father and you suffered together with my father and everything he did. So Shlomo forced Evutar out of his task as high priest to Adonai so that what Adonai had said in Shiloh about the family of Eli might be fulfilled. And when the news came to Joab, he fled to the tent of Adonai and took hold of the horns of the altar. For Joab had given his support to Adonijah even though he had not supported Absalom. King Shlomo was told, Joab has fled to the tent of Adonai. He's there by the altar. Solomon sent Benyah, the son of Jehoiada, with this order. Go, strike him down. Benyah came to the tent of Adonai and said to him, The king says, Leave. And he answered, No, I'd rather die here. Benyah brought the message back to the king. This is what Yoav sent to me. And the king answered him, Do what he said. Strike him down. Bury him. In this way you will take away from me and my father's family the blood which Yoav shed for no reason. Adonai will bring his blood back on his own, uh, on his own head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he. He killed them with the sword without my father David's awareness. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Yeter, commander of the army of Judah. In this way, their blood will return on the head of Joab and his descendants forever. But for David, his descendants, his family, and his throne, there will be peace forever from Adonai. So Banyah, the son of Jehoiada, went up, struck him down, and killed him. He was buried in his own house in the desert. 
The king put Bunya, the son of Jehoiada, in charge of the army instead of him, and the king replaced Ebutar with Zadok, the Kohen. The king summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem. Live there. Don't go outside the city walls. Know for a fact that on the day you go out and cross the Wadi Kidron, you will certainly die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei answered the king, What you have said is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for a long time, but after three years, two of Shimei's slaves ran away and went to Achish, son of Maacha, the king of Gath. And they told Shimei, Your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei set out, saddled his donkey, went to Achish and Gath to look for his slaves, and then Shimei returned bringing his slaves from Gath. Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and back, and the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Didn't I have you swear by Adonai and forewarn you by telling you, Know for a fact that on the day you leave and go anywhere outside the city, you will certainly die. And you answered me, What you're saying is good, I hear it. Why then haven't you kept the oath of Adonai and the mitzvah I charged you with? Moreover, the king said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the terrible things you did to David my father. Therefore, Adonai will bring back your wickedness on your own head. But King Shlomo will be blessed, and the throne of David will be established before Adonai forever. So the king gave the order to Banya, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down so that he died. Thus the kingdom was established in Solomon's hands. Well, the startled Bathsheba asks the obvious question to Adonijah. Have you come in peace, or as the complete Jewish Bible says, as a friend? And he answers in the affirmative. And when she gives him permission to speak, he just foolishly, foolishly blurts out that in his mind, the throne ought to have gone to him. And that in fact, The people of Israel expected it as well. He was probably right in his assessment since he was indeed the actual next in line for the throne. But you know, it's not usually a good idea to antagonize the mother of the king. (laughs) Bathsheba, who was taken aback by this visit, didn't react negatively to Adonijah's sentiments because he concluded the matter by acknowledging that Yehovah had given the kingdom to Shlomo, her son, implying that he'd come to terms with this reality. Now the reason for this risky approach surfaces. It was to set the stage to ask Bathsheba to go to Solomon and grant Adonijah a request. That is, Adonijah appealed to Bathsheba's Bathsheba's womanly compassion by seeking sympathy for his being denied his rightful place as king and then asking for but a small favor that would soothe his considerable emotional wound. And that favor was merely for permission to marry David's former nursemaid, Abishak. Bathsheba assumed that Adonia was seeking Abishag as a sort of 
consolation prize. And so she felt sympathy for him, that this is what he had hoped for. David had not added Abishag to his harem. So in some respects, this virgin was still fair game. Any kind of prohibition against marrying the former wife or concubine of a king didn't apply. Bathsheba obviously saw no harm in it. Perhaps even thought it was a way to mend a serious rift between Solomon and his half-brother. Something that was dangerous for both sides. So she agrees and has an audience with Shlomo. She really wasn't doing Adonijah any favors. While she she was taken in by this seeming innocent hope for a wife, it's nearly unthinkable that Solomon, let alone his many advisors, would not have seen through this rather thin veil of deceit. This was a, a clumsy attempt to unblock what had been a closed road to the throne. But you know, a person's judgment can become clouded when they greatly covet something that's not theirs to own. Solomon loved his mother, but he wasn't going to grant her request simply because of that fact. The king stood as his mother entered the palace and had a place set to the right of his throne for her to sit. Now the place on the right side is one of authority. So we have here a very clear indication of the great respect and honor that Shlomo had for Bathsheba. Biblically speaking, even a king is not allowed to disregard God's command to honor his parents. Now obviously, just as David knew her visit to the palace involved something that that she wanted. (laughs) So did Solomon know that his mother didn't just drop by for a nice visit. Bathsheba gets right to the point, but she couches the request as but an insignificant one that ought not to be refused. It just wasn't to be. Shlomo instantly understood the motivation behind Adonijah's want of Abishag, something his mother apparently did not. And Adonijah only wanted to marry Abishag to lay the groundwork for claiming the throne for himself. While the inner circle of David's court knew that Abishag was but a special servant for David to help him through his last days, the citizens of Israel wouldn't have seen it that way. For them, she would have been a de facto wife or concubine and therefore part of David's harem. It was usual for a new king to inherit some or all of the former king's harem. But to marry the woman that, ha- that to many would have seemed closest to David's heart would have been all but proof that Adonijah had a right to the throne. For others, it would have just indicated an outright claim to power. Now, such a request to marry Abishag could only be to divide loyalties of the people and start a civil war. Well, in verse 22, Solomon explained to his mother 
that marrying Abishag, Adonijah's, after marrying Abishag, Adonijah's next step would be to remind everyone that he is Solomon's older brother. First in line ahead of Solomon. And next, he would reaffirm Abiatar as the high priest, the same one who was with David. And finally, put Joab back in charge, full charge, of the military. He was David's former commander. That would mean a fight to the death or maybe even an end of Solomon's reign. David's deathbed instructions to Solomon hadn't been in vain. Adonia's naive attempt to enlist Bathsheba to help him, help him reclaim that throne would be his last. Shlomo vows to impose the death penalty. And since there was no court of appeals, King Solomon immediately sent his top general, Banya, to kill Adonijah. Well, Christian scholars wrestle a little bit, a little bit more than rabbis, over whether what Solomon ordered was right in God's eyes or not. No doubt, the Torah law did not contemplate the notion of a king ruling over Israel, at least not in the usual way of kings. We've talked on a number of occasions about the customary protocol of a new king killing all those who he thought might have a reason to make claim to the throne, and in some respects, that's exactly what's happening here. Now, while that may have been typical of kings in ancient times, that hardly makes it right. But the rabbis well point out that Adonijah openly acknowledged in his conversation with Bathsheba that he was aware that Solomon was God's anointed king. Therefore, this is quite similar to the rebellious attitude that Saul took regarding David. Saul was directly told by Samuel that David was God's Mashiach, his anointed one, and that God was revoking Saul's kingship. All that did was to kindle an insatiable rage within King Shaul to destroy David, and God eternally condemned him for it. We don't know how it was that Adonijah came to know about or to believe that Solomon was God's chosen, Jehovah's Mashiach. But his own words spoken to Bathsheba betray his knowledge of that truth. We see no condemnation in the Bible for Adonijah's execution. And likely this is because in God's eyes, Adonijah was like Saul, rebellious towards God in trying to kind of reroute redemption history. Now, since this is not directly stated, we have to rely on established biblical principle and pattern and some small measure of speculation to come to this conclusion, but it all, all fits quite neatly. And so we should probably accept this case of killing Adonijah as righteous justice and not self-serving murder. 
Now as awkward and unsophisticated as Adonijah's attempt to usurp the throne, Solomon figured somebody else had to have instigated this. Who else could it have been other than Eviatar the high priest and Yoav the military commander who had sided with Adonia and been his guests of honor at the banquet that set into motion this rapid succession of events that led to Solomon's coronation. So, first, Shlomo dealt with Eviatar. Now let me remind you that up to now there were two high priests presiding over Israel. Eviatar and Sadok. By definition this is wrong. There can no more be two authorized high priests serving at once than two messiahs. However, David had allowed it. No doubt as a political convenience. Eviatar was primarily associated with those northern tribal alliances. Sadok with the southern coalition. So if David had replaced him in favor of Sadok, it would have been seen as a direct insult to the northern tribal coalition. So he let them both serve as kind of co-high priests. One of them had to be illegitimate. That was Eviatar. Eviatar was a descendant of Eli. He was Samuel's mentor. Eli was a a high priest. He was a good and faithful servant of God. He was, in, he was immensely popular. He was a respected figure in Israel. But he too was illegitimate according to the Torah law because he was of the line of Ithamar which is, who was the son of Aaron. Now, when the wilderness tabernacle was originally consecrated into service, Ithamar and his family was given charge over the Levites, those workers who performed the tabernacle functions, such as transporting it. However, it was Eleazar, Ithamar's brother, who replaced his father Aaron as high priest and thus was established as the only legitimate line of high priests. So King Solomon banished Eviatar from his royal court and from the priesthood for his rebellious association with Adonijah. Now, while this certainly was not an honest attempt on Solomon's part to cleanse the priesthood of an illegitimate high priest in order to right a wrong, it did serve to do exactly that. Sadok was now the sole high priest and he was the legitimate office holder according to the Torah. Eviatar was sent away to his own property at a place called Anathoth. And apparently even though Anathoth was a city in the territory of Benjamin, it was a Levitical city. And it had been that way since the time of Joshua. We find that in Joshua 21.18. Now it's amazing how we might forget ancient prophetic pronouncements, but God doesn't. Not one of them. Not the most obscure. The banishment of Eviatar was prophesied 
years earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to read starting at verse 27. Page 300 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Follow along with me. A man of God came to Eli and told him, Here is what Adonai says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestors' clan when they were in Egypt serving as slaves in Pharaoh's household? Didn't I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, burn incense, and wear a ritual vest in my presence? Didn't I assign to your ancestors' clan all the offerings of the people of Israel made by fire? So why are you showing such disrespect for my sacrifices and offerings which I ordered to be made at my dwelling? Why do you show more honor to your sons than to me? making yourselves fat with the choicest part of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I did indeed say that your family and your father's family would walk in my presence forever. But now Adonai says, forget it. I respect those who respect me. But those who despise me will meet with contempt. The day is coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's family so that no one in your family will live to old age. At a time when Israel is prospering, you will see a rival in my dwelling. And never will anyone in your family live to old age. Still, I won't cut off every one of your men from my altar, because that would make your eyes grow dim and you would waste away. Nevertheless, all of your descendants will die young. Your sign that this will occur will be what happens when your two sons, Hophni and Pincus, they will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what I want and what I intend. I will make his family faithful. He will serve in the presence of my anointed one forever. Everyone left in your family will come and prostrate himself before him for a silver coin or a loaf of bread and say, Please, won't you give me some work as a priest so that I can have a scrap of bread to eat? Eviatar was the last of Eli's line. Now his rival, Sadok, had taken over as high priest. Eli's line of high priests ended. His illegitimate line. And now they served any way they could within the hierarchy of Levite workers just to survive. Prophecy fulfilled. You just read about it. It's interesting that Solomon chose to not simply execute Ebutar because he was every bit as guilty of rebellion as Adonijah. Yet Solomon honored the memory of his father and that Ebutar too suffered at King Saul's hand alongside David. Ebutar, who was now about 80 years old, who had been loyal to David at great personal risk, And Solomon decided that this overrode any thought of killing Eviatar, however just it might have been, for being disloyal to him. But Joab, well, he's another matter. 
The minute Yoav heard that Shlomo had executed Adonia and then banished Evyatar, he knew his life was worth nothing. So he sought refuge in the sacred precinct where, where the altar was located. Now it's hard to know for certain which altar he fled to. Very likely it was the one at Gibeon. Now I think this is probably the case because here in chapter 2 the verse speaks of the altar that was at the tent of Yehovah. Now this designation is usually reserved for speaking about the remnants of the wilderness tabernacle and not the tent that David had erected in the city of David to house the Ark of the Covenant. This is as opposed to chapter 1 where Adonijah fled to the altar, there's no mention of it being at the tent of Yehovah, so it was probably a, a local one. Not only that, but Joab would have wanted to put some distance between he and Solomon. No doubt by fleeing to this most holy site in Israel, Gibeon, Yoav hoped that Solomon would honor that place as being a sanctuary and that that would protect him. But Joab's crime was such that no sanctuary need be honored and Solomon was in no mood to spare him. David had implied that Solomon needed to find a reason to rid himself of Joab. Well, now the reason had presented itself. So Shlomo dispatched Benyah to find and execute Joab. And when he got there, Yoav was holding tight to the horns of the altar. He ordered Joab to let go, leave the sacred area. Joab refused, saying, if you're going to kill me, it has to be at the foot of the altar. Hoping, of course, that Benya wouldn't do that. Well, apparently, Benya was uncertain of the legality of killing Joab as he held on to the altar at Gibeon. So he returned to Shlomo and he told him about the dilemma. In verses 31 through 33, Solomon carefully explains to the concerned Benyah why it is that Joab must be executed. Why it is legal to kill him even in that sacred place. The reason is that Joab is blood guilty. He has murdered. And so sanctuary No sanctuary, rather, is afforded a murderer. He has murdered Amasa and Abner, but he was never brought to justice for these crimes. Verse 32 says that Joab's blood will be on his own head. This phrase has a very specific meaning. See, the Torah does not permit sacrificial atonement to pay for some crimes. In other words, where is the sacrifice of a lamb or a goat or even a bull would expiate the sins for something like stealing or assault or the vast majority of the listed trespasses in the law, it would not suffice for other crimes. The entire premise of animal sacrifice is that the life of an innocent animal is substituted for the life of of the person who commits a trespass, a sin, against God. However, for crimes like adultery, idolatry, and murder, 
No substitutionary sacrifice is acceptable to the Lord. Only the life, the blood, of the trespasser is accepted as the price. In Bible terms, their blood, the criminal's blood, will be on their own head. Listen to these excerpts from the Torah on that subject. This is from, don't turn there, this is Numbers 35, 30 and 31. If anyone kills someone, the murderer is to be put to death upon the testimony of witnesses. But the testimony of only one witness will not suffice to cause a person to be put to death. Also, you are not to accept a ransom in lieu of the life of a murderer condemned to death. He must be put to death. Deuteronomy 19, 8-13 If Adonai your God expands your territory as he swore to your ancestors that he would, and he gives you all the land he promised to give to your ancestors, provided you keep and observe all these mitzvot I'm giving you today, loving Adonai your God and always following his ways, then you are to add three more cities for yourselves besides these three, so that, the, so that innocent blood will not be shed in the land of Adonai your God that he is giving you as an inheritance and thus blood guilt be on you. However, someone hates his fellow member of the community, lies in wait for him, attacks him, strikes him a death blow, and then flees into one of these sanctuary cities, then the leaders of his own town are to send and bring him back from there and hand him over to the next of kin avenger to be put to death. You are not to pity him. Rather, you must put an end to the shedding of innocent blood in Israel. Then things will go well with you. Murder is an especially serious crime. Unpunished murder defiles the people and the land of the community in which it occurs. In fact, the congregation of God, the community, is responsible to the Lord to see to it that righteous justice, accomplished in accordance with the law of Moses, is carried out. However, since the administration of Israel's government changed from the days of Moses and then of the days of the judges, since Saul was made king, and the government of Israel became a monarchy, then it falls upon the shoulders of the king of Israel to ensure that justice is administered according to the laws of God. Thus in verse 33, Solomon says that by Benyah killing Joab, even if he's holding on to the horns of the most sacred altar of sacrifice, then David, David's offspring in his house, his family, his, family, his dynasty, they shall be at peace with Jehovah. Being at peace with Jehovah means that the blood guilt that's currently lying upon David's family for not executing justice upon Joab, that's going to finally be lifted. Everything that Shlomo told Banyah is true. It is indeed a very good rendering. It demonstrates a very good understanding of the Torah law. And as we saw by reading the Torah passages, this this is not tradition. It's not a Middle Eastern custom. 
It's exactly as we ought to be executing righteous justice upon murderers today in our era. Let me be clear. First, that now, as then, not all killing is classified as murder. There is such a thing in the Bible as justifiable homicide and even lesser degrees of unjustifiable homicide that don't warrant the death penalty. But these kinds of killings are not the kind that's being dealt with here. We as a community bear the blood guilt upon us as a community, not as individuals for placing murderers in jail for a time. Even for life. Instead of doing what the Lord prescribes. God commands that their lives be forfeit as an act of godly, righteous justice and as a kind of atonement and as a means of cleansing the land and the community from blood guilt. If at some point that murderer repents and he confesses and he's sincerely sorry, it doesn't matter except as concerns their personal spiritual life with God. On earth, among men, within the community, the judicial consequences for serious crimes are not pardoned in God's eyes, even if through faith in Yeshua these sins are pardoned in heaven. There's a difference. Well, once this was all satisfactorily explained to him, Banyat travels back to Gideon. He finds Yoav at the altar. He strikes him dead. His corpse was taken to his family tomb. Now while some English texts call the place he was buried the desert, in Hebrew it is Midbar. And it usually means wilderness. Not necessarily desert wilderness. Joab did not live in the desert. Neither did his family. Rather, since he was part of David's family, he was from the Bethlehem area. Rashi says that Midbar often just means unsettled land that's not cultivated. Land used only for grazing animals. And this would describe the area around Bethlehem quite well in that era if Rashi's correct. Well, now that Yoav was dead, Benyah could be commander of the army without fear of, of a rival or that the army would be divided by loyalties to different commanders. And since Eviatar the high priest had been stripped of his title and duties and sent packing to his home city of Anathoth, the way was clear for Zadok to be the rightful and only high priest of Israel in King Solomon's administration. These were major changes that needed to be made, even if the way it didn't the way it came about wasn't all that savory. Now King Shlomo now had a fully loyal royal court to serve him. And he could begin to move forward without looking over his shoulder. In the case of Joab, Solomon did no wrong from God's perspective in executing him. In deposing Eviatar, 
Solomon did what was right in God's eyes by removing an illegitimate high priest. But now in verse 36 comes the case of Shimei, whom David clearly wanted Solomon to dispose of after his death. But he told Solomon that the best way to go about this was to find a suitable reason to punish him for some current rather than past offense. So Slomo took the clever step of virtually quarantining Shimei inside the city of Jerusalem. Now this did three things. First, it put Shimei on notice that he was being carefully watched. Second, it removed Shimei from his comfortable position in his home in Bahrain, where he could easily foment trouble with fellow members of his tribe of Benjamin. And third, it put Shimei in a situation whereby it was almost certain that this old troublemaker was bound to make an actionable misstep. Shimei agreed to move to Jerusalem, never again cross the Kidron Valley. Essentially, Shlomo made him an offer he couldn't refuse. The idea of not crossing the Kidron was that he couldn't go back home. Sure enough, about three years later, something happened. Two of Shimei's slaves ran away, which means that Shimei had been allowed to bring his wealth and household with him. They had escaped to Philistine Gath, and the elderly Shimei wanted them back. So he ignored the deal he made with King Solomon. He rode off to Gath, he retrieved his slaves, but he returned to Jerusalem. Now, one can only speculate why Shimei would take such a risk. But likely, because it's so human, he thought that because three years had passed since his promise to Solomon and that he'd been a good boy all that time, that considering the circumstances and his prompt return, that Solomon would overlook this disobedience. But this is the same rash Shimei who thought he could get away with cursing David as he fled, even throwing rocks at him. But with a little well-timed groveling, managed to keep from having his head removed from his shoulders when David returned to power. No doubt he thought he could manipulate this king in the same way. Now there's an interesting twist here that actually does have some bearing on the outcome. In verse 42, Solomon asks the rhetorical question as to whether Shimei remembered that he had sworn an oath to Solomon not to leave Jerusalem. And the twist is that when we're first told of this agreement, there's no mention of it receiving religious sanction by means of it being considered a vow sworn to by both sides. We have regularly read the standard biblical vow and oath protocol of as Adonai lives or before the Lord, something like that. And always the words vow or oath are used to make it clear that a formal vow invoking Jehovah's name was established. We read nothing of the sort 
in verses 36 through 38. Bottom line, I don't think there was ever a vow made. I think Solomon decided to declare their agreement a vow. So that when Shimei broke it, Solomon would have a pious and legal reason to kill him. As though what Shimei did was to actually affront God by breaking a vow in God's name and thus that would be a reason for execution. King Solomon makes this elaborate speech that's essentially like a judge ruling from the bench and explaining to the defendant the reason for his guilty verdict as well as for this harsh sentence. And just as Adonijah gave away to Bathsheba the true reason for his request for Abishag's hand in marriage because Adonijah felt entitled to the throne, Solomon gives away the true reason for his handing down the death sentence to Shimei. It was for all the terrible things you did to David, my father. He concludes the sentencing by saying that he, Shlomo, will be blessed and the throne of David will never end. The meaning of this is that the nation of Israel will see that what Solomon did by executing Shimei was just. And Solomon's going to be hailed for this decision. And even though it was always Shimei's grand hope that the tribe of Benjamin, his own tribe, that produced Israel's first king, Saul, that they would regain the throne, it would not only never happen in his lifetime, it was never going to happen at all. By all customs of that day, Solomon's order to execute Shimei was just. However, was it just in God's eyes? I don't believe so. Shimei had not rebelled against either David or Solomon. He certainly was not respectful. He was a bit of a rat. And he certainly had hopes for their demise and replacement with members of his own tribe. But Solomon's stance that Shimei had done something wrong that violated a commandment of God is not true. This isn't far removed from David having Uriah, Bathsheba's first husband, killed. God does not ordain the death sentence lightly because he values life. He certainly doesn't ordain death for insults among humans or for thoughts that we might have or for traveling beyond a geographical boundary line. (coughs) Shlomo now had blood on his hands. We'll take up chapter 3 next time.